0: On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Nina Simon. Nina has worn many hats NASA engineer, slam poet, game designer, museum director, and nonprofit CEO. Her work on community participation in museums, libraries, parks, and theaters has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, NPR, and the TEDx stage. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Nina now lives off the grid in the Santa Cruz Mountains with her family. Nina's debut novel, mother-daughter murder night is out now. What a bio. I mean, we could talk to you for hours just (laughs) unpacking all that. We're going to focus on the book today, but wow. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Nina.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And I think the only thing really to know about that bio is it's a testament to the fact that I'm good at diving in with passion to things, but I'm also really good at quitting things when I'm ready uh, for something new.
0: Okay, if that is not the hallmark of a cardinal sign, I don't know what is. (laughs) So we haven't gotten to the astrology part, but I'll explain more later. That is just cardinal sign all over, all over it. So, but let's start with the book. So tell us about Mother Daughter Murder Night.
1: So Mother Daughter Murder Night is a family drama and a murder mystery. I like to think of it as a big hearted mystery. It's about three generations of women, a tough, Feisty grandma, Lana Rubicon, her estranged single mom daughter, Beth, and her adventurous granddaughter, the teenager, Jack. And the three of them are thrust together because of a health crisis and are living in this ramshackle cottage on the side of this beautiful marine preserve called Elkhorn Slough here in the Monterey Bay, when Lana, who is convalescing unhappily in bed, discovers A mysterious, suspicious experience outside the window. Two days later, her granddaughter Jack is leading a kayak tour and comes upon a dead body. And Lana decides that this is her new purpose to clear her granddaughter's name and to solve this mystery and to drive her daughter bananas while doing it. Amazing. There's so much good stuff in there. All
2: right, good. Yeah. And there are so many fantastic, complicated women, as you've just noted. We're going to talk about all three of the Rubicon women individually, but the first one we meet is Beth. She's burying a harbor seal washed up at the beach, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Beth right out of the gate. She's calm, stalwart, the strong, silent type. So tell us about your creation of Beth, any inspirations for her or challenges you faced when writing her character.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting that, you know, for many, many drafts of the book, the book started with Lana. It did not start with Beth. And I think in a lot of ways, Lana, who is bombastic and very pushy, (laughs) is the star of the show. But because... The book and the arc is really about the relationship between Beth and Lana. And because it mostly takes place in Beth's world, in this natural, wild place where harbor seals wash up dead on the beach outside your home, Beth was the place to start. And I would say that Beth was the character who I have the most to learn from and who I learned the most from through the writing. I am definitely more of a Lana. So is my mom, who inspired Mm -hmm. that character. Mm -hmm. And I think that, to be honest, I have always been curious about people like Beth, who define themselves by caring for others, whose strength is in their sacrifice for others, because I have always been more of the independent, selfish type. And I think that, you know, I wrote this book for my mom while helping her through a hard health crisis in a lot of ways writing this book was my experience of being a Lana who was learning to love what it means to be a Beth, to be a caregiver, and to see the strength in that. And actually of all the main characters, Beth went through the most edits because I needed to learn how to love and respect that character because I, like Lana in the beginning, did not have much time for a woman who sacrificed her own dreams for others. And I think that it's been my journey in writing this book to really not just admire that kind of person, but really deeply love what it is to be the kind of caregiver and the kind of glue I see Beth as being in the story. Oh, wow. Such wow. A good answer. Yeah,
0: that is so great. And you're right, it is. I'm going to move on to Lana, but Beth anchors us in the story in just a way that Lana would have taken us on a different ride. And so i feel I felt like that was the right place to start and it just set the right tone for the growth that we would see. Because Beth, she sacrificed a lot of her dreams as you're talking about, but she is still, she's still a Rubicon woman. She is she is independent and you know, she's not a a helicopter mom. She's not, you know, you know, kind of like hovering over everything that happens. She is her own woman as well. So Yeah. And it could seem aloof, but instead it was, she was just so strong and staunch and, and like meaty to get into. I love that.
1: Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, these three generations of women, a lot of what I was exploring is what does it mean to be a strong woman? What does it mean to be a strong woman from different generations and perspectives? And are there different ways to be strong? And again, for me, this was a learning because I started out really thinking about a strong woman in one very particular way. And I hope that all three of these women that people identify with different ones among them but also that people can explore and kind of expand or at least it's helped me expand what does it mean to me for there to be a strong woman and how can we see that in these different women in very different ways. Oh yeah, that
2: mission so accomplished true. there. Yeah, because
1: yeah. I would I do identify more as Alana and I think you're absolutely right.
2: It does sort of challenge you to look at a bath and go, well, why is she not strong? Why do I think it only has to look this one way? And mm-hmm. wow, that really, and what you learned yeah. from it. God, I need yes. I need some of
1: that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think so many of us who've been trained to be super independent yes. women, or I'll just speak for myself, that I looked at interdependence and care as somewhere between embarrassing to uninteresting in my own life before. You know, both my mom and I were these very hard-charging, independent boss ladies. And when I started caregiving for her, I would have these weird days where I would be like, proud that I had made a meal she would eat. And then I would be like, Nina, this doesn't matter. Like, you're not having impact on the world. You're not, you know, you're not a CEO anymore. Like, why are you proud to just make a meal? And just, I think that there is this programming in many of us to be strong in this way that's very much about independence and self reliance and that resists interdependence. And I think that, you know, Lana absolutely, it's her journey to go from this place of deep suspicion of interdependence to some kind of embrace and new idea about what family love could look like.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a little more traditionally masculine, Lana's way of being out in the world and independent in the world. And Beth's is more feminine in the sense of mm. not mm. about femininity, but about care and community and nurturing. Mm. But yet you never confuse her for someone who isn't a strong woman. So, right. I mean, bravo to that. That is Thank fantastic. You. So- But Lana, she's the star. I mean, really. It makes sense that you sound like you drew on a little inspiration from yourself, from your mom, multiple sources, because she is like nothing I've ever seen before. This is a character that just jumped off the page to me so many times. First of all, she treats her cancer, which comes very early in the book, it's not a spoiler, as highly inconvenient. (laughs) I mean, left and right, she's just cracking me up. And she never misses an opportunity to kind of pretend it's really not holding her back. I mean, the things she does in this book, including a Jimmy Choo scene that I will never forget. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to read a a little bit from her right in the beginning when she's really reckoning with this. And I think you've already talked about the scene. She's looking out the window and she sees a man out there. and, And I want to read a little, if that's okay. She felt a sudden fierce longing to be this man, not a farmer, but someone out in the world doing something, something physical and definitive and certain while others slept. That was the life she was meant to live, to be the doer, not the watcher. And if that doesn't kind of like sum up Lana, I don't know what is, and her struggle, and she's not, even though she's sick, she is not going to just kind of lay there and allow herself to be taken care of. Tell us about Lana, how you came up with her, what challenges you might have found in making her different from the inspiration or finding her arc.
1: Yeah, well, Lana is a hundred percent rooted she's the only character who I can really say this is based on somebody and actually you know there's that page in the very front of a book where you have to say like this is a work of fiction nothing Mm -hmm. is related to anybody and uh, you know I obviously signed off on that statement but there's no question that this character is really rooted in my mom and even her circumstances because you know my mom um, I wrote this book for my mom after she had a surprise sudden cancer diagnosis. You know, she has always in my lifetime been a very tough L.A. Jewish businesswoman. The good news is we were never estranged the way Lana and Beth have a tough relationship. We have a very deep relationship. On the other hand, I could never get my mom to move up to the Monterey Bay. So this was my fantasy, you know, and and Lana is sort of the superhero version of my mother. So where my mother and I were dealing with the scary elements of cancer you know lana was just chalking it up as an inconvenience and moving on you know where my mom was stuck in bed lana was putting on her slingbacks and getting in her car and going to track down this murderer and so there's no question that i think the reason i could write this character with love because to be honest you know lana has a lot of rough edges and i've definitely talked to some readers who one person said I don't know if I like her, but I love her. And she's definitely, (laughs) you know, she's not the best mom or grandma, but she is so fully herself and so alive in herself. And I think that I just love that for her. I love that for an older woman. And, you know, I spend a lot of time and spent a lot of time growing up around older women who have talked a lot about feeling invisible as they get older. And I think that Lana is somebody who has staved off that invisibility with power. And now that suddenly that power and agency is ripped from her, she has to find another way to be the doer and not the watcher. And I think that, you know, for her, the idea of being invisible, I think there's a line in the book somewhere about its it's almost as bad as being dead, yeah. right? And while obviously she's in an extreme situation both in terms of what has been taken from her but also the choice she makes of how she's going to assert herself I think this is something a lot of women feel, whether it's something you feel when you become a mother or whether it's something you feel when you're starting to see that everybody you work with is decades younger than you. But I just know so many strong, smart women who are really grappling with this question of how do I make myself seen? Mm -hmm. How do I um, make myself heard in this world? And I think Lana is somebody with a very strong take on it and with a lot of judgments about how other women are going about it as well. Mm Yeah.
2: Incredible. I loved her. But I also want to talk about Jack. We're going to get to the next generation, the youngest. She's only 15, but she is extremely independent, whether that's by nature or nurture, probably both because she's truly a Rubicon woman. She's being raised by a single mom who isn't that much older than her. And on page 20, you write, some people trusted the universe to take care of them. And then there were people like Jack who took care of themselves. So talk to us about Jack. I mean, she is clearly, like you said, very independent, resourceful, thinks she should take care of herself. But was you talked about the, the different generations of women. And what were you exploring with her and sort of that younger generation? If Lana was sort of based on your mom, and you yeah. talked about what you learned from Beth. So what did you take sure. away from Jack?
1: Yeah, well, spoiler, uh, you know, I have a daughter, not not a book spoiler, and my daughter's 10. She was seven when I started writing this book, and my daughter's very first word was self, as in, I want to do it myself, do not get that thing for me, self, self, she would always say when she was a little baby, and she's very outdoorsy and adventurous, and I, I think I wrote Jack both aspirationally for what I hope my daughter will be like, but also, you know, I grew up with divorced parents and it so much of the time it was me, my sister and my mom and my mom was working all the time and my sister and I really had a a relationship, a very close relationship with our mom, where we admired her, but we were also doing our own thing. And I think that I wanted to write a relationship between Jack and Beth, Beth, who had been a teenage mom, who had, you know, left to forge her own life with her little daughter. I wanted them to have a life that felt real, but was not overly inflected by trauma. And that It's like, this is the reality of Jack's life, that she lives with her mom, that she doesn't really know her dad, that she has this, you know, faraway grandmother, and that her life is about being outdoors. And I I think that often we can focus on what kids are missing, but I think that the kids I know, especially, you know, when I think about my own daughter or kids who grow up in nature, there are so many resources to draw on if you have of love and support from people who allow you to fly. And I think, you know, one of the things that I really tried to write into this story is that even though all three of these women have very different ideas about how they want to live their lives and the relationships they want to have with each other, they all... Fundamentally want to be there for each other want to love and respect each other They just are often really bad at showing it (laughs) in a way that works for the others And that's a lot of the negotiation of the book But there's never a question About the fact that beth trusts her daughter to be out kayaking or paddleboarding by herself There's never a question that jack is going to show up for her family and move to the couch when her grandma moves in for an unknown Amount of time even if they're not close and so I think that I wanted to root it in this fundamental idea of family as a source of love and hope for great relationships, even if they aren't always perfect, as opposed to family as a source of irreconcilable difference or stress or trauma. Even though there's plenty of conflict on the page, there is a deep root of love for these women and, you know, it evolves and becomes more mature over the book, but I think it's always there. Yeah,
0: Nina, that is so... Interesting because that is – I would think that's the challenge of the arcs for these women because you don't want Mm. them to all of a sudden become mushy and so different that they're unrecognizable. And in a lot of ways, they stay fundamentally who they are. Their arc and their changes are about coming together and relying on one another in ways that they haven't had to nor wanted to even before this kind of opportunity – I'm using air quotes it came about and so yeah. and when did you know that when did you know that that hmm. would be their change was really about their reliance on each other and if you want to think about it for a minute i'd love to read a little bit from the beginning please yeah when sure. when beth kind of is like what's happening here her mo- <laughs> lana has moved in and beth doesn't know this yet but jack has had You've already talked about she finds the body and she's come and bonded with with Lana about it. And Beth kind of walks in and she, you write, Beth watched for a moment transfixed by the hypnotic gentle motion of her mother's hand over her daughter's tangled hair. She didn't recognize either of the women on the bed as hers. She felt like a clumsy interloper, as if she had stumbled into someone else's family by mistake. And it's just a beautiful moment. Again, Lana is not not herself. And Jack is in a very vulnerable moment, it's just, it all feels so set up by the context as opposed to like, wait, what are these people doing? So how did you know that you needed to do to focus on that as opposed to changing who they were?
1: Yeah. I think I read a lot of books about groups of women where there is an alpha leader And some followers. And I think that what I was curious to do and and what feels more true maybe to my family, my mom, my sister, and I, but also I've always been a jock and I've always been on teams playing sports with women. It's like, what does it look like when you have a group of women where they are all alphas in their own way? And I think that the conflicts that come up are different because it's not about everybody looking to the star and revolving around that person. It's about Everybody negotiating, how can we each be fully ourselves and be together without wanting to strangle each other? And I think that many of my strongest female relationships, whether they be friends or whether they be with my sister and my mom it's a lot more like that dynamic than it is like a, you know, one alpha and follower dynamic. So I I think I was curious about that. And I I wanted all three of these women to get to become more themselves. You know, there's this definition about love and about a partnership that you want somebody who challenges you, you know, to be your best self or to be the self you want to be. And I was thinking about that in terms of this idea of how could they negotiate a new version of family love that enables them to each fully be themselves. And there are times where, you know, Lana eggs Jack on to be more adventurous than Beth might like, or, you know, Beth, you know, pushes Lana to think differently about a person or a situation. And so I think that I was more interested in this exploration of how do strong women have tight negotiated, and I think they are often very negotiated, love relationships with each other rather than another version of who's the star here. Mm. I'll also say just on a writing level, you know, when I first wrote this, it was, it's in third person, but it was all third person Lana's POV. And I ended up shifting it pretty early to multi-POV, but then my editor, William Morrow, even pushed me more into really making sure that Beth, Lana, and Jack each have their own rich story even if Lana is still the star of the show and I, I think there were two reasons that happened one is very practical which is if you're gonna have a murder mystery with amateur detectives the amateur detective unlike a cop cannot go everywhere and cannot <sighs> investigate everything so I, I sort of needed more characters to be able to look into this but I also realized that Seeing things only from Lana's, frankly, very judgmental gaze was not going to yield the kind of richness of relationship growth and development of each of these characters that I could explore if I really could sink into each of the three of them. And again, you know, Beth was the one I had to write draft after draft to kind of get into this question about who is this person? and What is her root of strength and power? What is she willing, you know, to forgive, but she's not a pushover? You know, how how does she express herself? And and so no question, Lana and Jack were much easier for me to write, but I loved learning from Beth as I wrote more about her.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like that dynamic, though, is something that's very natural to you. And uh, for me, it would be, I would have it's like going to space. I'm, I have no sisters. I, my mother and I are uh-huh. close, but it's, and I was, didn't do team sports really. I mean, I yeah. was, yeah. so that, that's just so, I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. How do you do that? You're like, well, it's my life. I get it. <laughs> I get that dynamic. Oh, that's
1: so interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, when my mom got sick at the time, she, my sister and I were all CEOs and my mom actually called us And she was having problems speaking because of these tumors in her brain. And she was telling us that she needed to have brain surgery, but that she didn't want us to come because we had our own lives and work and and we shouldn't come. And, you know, we each got off the phone. We called each other, my sister and I, and we were just like, we're going, you know, like, (laughs) what are we talking, you know, this is bananas. And so, yeah, there's no question that that is the world I grew up in and that I live in and that I just love and I think especially with team sports and I hope eventually I've I've been doing some writing on projects that are rooted in women's sports because I think there's something so interesting about women being really competitive together in a way that is not against but with each other and it's just something that has been like a deep source of pleasure and joy and growth in my life I'm so glad you said that because I don't
2: have the sisters either like Corinne but I do have the deep love of sports and Competition yeah. with women, not against them. And I saw a post you did about like your journey with like volleyball and how yeah. you were exploring partnership in that context. And I was like, yes, I mean, I'm a big tennis player, but it's it doubles. And I have this partner that I've played with forever, and we really I feel that way. I feel like it's a partnership different than like the partnership I have with Corinne, which this is another example of that though, too. Yes. Um and I love that you're gonna explore that in something else because I feel like that I get, you know, that way in for me, definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Especially and I know from having listened to you guys, I mean, women who are going out and kicking butt and making waves. I think there's often a story that we can only do that at the detriment of other women or, you know, that there is this whole story, this you know, the star is born kind of classic story about get out of my way kind of thing. And that just hasn't been my experience. And that's not the way that I connect with other women. And, you know, and even a character like the detective in this book, Teresa Ramirez, you know, the the push pull about what it means to be able to stand on your own two feet and to negotiate your relationship with other strong women. You know, she's obviously not in the Rubicon family, but she ends up sort of against her will working with Lana on this, you know, on this murder mystery. Yes. and Yeah, exactly. And they really have to negotiate what their relationship is going to be and also looking at the kind of power structure elements of... You know, a cop and an amateur, an older woman and a younger woman, a white, you know, Jewish woman and a Latina woman. And I had a lot of fun playing with those power dynamics in that negotiated relationship as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, you're getting actually to my next thing with this sort of larger cast of characters. We've been focused on the three Rubicon women. But I mean, you've got the bad guys and just sort of, like I said, this whole cast that are invested in this land and could be implicated in this murder So tell us about kind of your creating of the larger community here, the good and the bad.
1: Yeah, I had so much fun writing secondary characters. I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of a toss-up for me of like, if I could only write Lana or if I could only write Paul, you know, like uh, who is this kayak shack owner (laughs) who is like very dopey and ridiculous. Um, I just have such deep love for it. And, And one of the things, you know, as a debut novelist, I was learning so much about writing as I went along and one of the things that I found I really loved playing with is How quickly can you introduce a secondary character without them just being a flat stereotype? And how do you, you know, really populate a world with people who feel different from each other, but also feel quite real? And so I had a lot of fun playing with what that cast would look like. I had a lot of fun with the idea that the Rubicons are on one side of this wetlands, this slough, and on the other side is this ranch that becomes the source of conflict as many stakeholders are vying to control the ranch in its future and looking at the parallelism of the Rubicon family on one side of the slough and the Rhodes family that owns this ranch on the other. And, you know, what it means when you have families that look great on the surface, but maybe are not so great underneath or vice versa. I won't say which family is which, but I had a lot of fun playing with that. You know, I think that again like because it was my first novel i wanted to set it somewhere i know well but not right where i grocery shop especially <laughs> yeah. in a smaller community and so elcornsloo is just 30 minutes down the road from me and a lot of the research for this book a lot of the secondary characters came from conversations i had with people in this area so For example, there's a woman I play volleyball with who owns a kayak shop and she taught me so much about what the kayak touring business looks like. And, you know, I have a friend who's a wildlife biologist. I was telling about the book and I was telling him about this ranch where this mystery takes place. And he said, oh, you know, do you know Wally? I was like, who's Wally? He's like, Wally's the rancher who owns that property I'm like no no I made up this ranch for the book he's like no there's a ranch right where you're talking about do you want me to you know he calls him right there and two weeks later I'm on horseback with Wally you know (laughs) going around this ranch and he was so helpful he taught me so much about the birds and the plants of course the rancher in my story is this Hal Rhodes is this very kind of upright, almost regal, old school rancher, whereas Wally is this like Willie Nelson style, very (laughs) hippie-ish. And, you know, he helped me so much with the book and eventually I had to break it to him that the... (laughs) Character who was not at all based on him, but who happens to own this imaginary ranch, you know, is, is does not do as well as my friend <laughs> Wally is doing, and and so there was this funny element of besides Lana really saying to myself, I'm not basing any of these characters on people I know, but I'm rooting it in this community I know so well, and also you know having worked in nonprofits, looking at the contradictions I know so well about working with wealthy donors, about this idea of you know our do-gooders are always on the side of angels. And so I loved playing with some of those things in these characters. I loved making it a really multi-ethnic cast, really true to the community I live in, and just had a blast with these characters. And, you know, the reason I wrote a murder mystery partly is because my mom and I love murder mysteries, but partly is because for a first novel, you know, Corinne, I don't know how you're approaching this, but I was overwhelmed to imagine writing a novel that was just open-ended general fiction and I thought okay murder mysteries you have these tent poles of things that have to happen right there's a dead body there have to be some suspects they have to figure it out you know I was like I could work to this very very broad framework and so I knew I wanted to have a lot of different characters and I knew I wanted to have fun really inviting the reader to always be asking themselves, could this person be a suspect? Is this person, you know, somebody who's involved in some way? And I feel like you have to have a lot of characters to make that an interesting and fun puzzle for the reader. Yes.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm, the constraints are sometimes freeing in writing. I even Mm -hmm. ended up doing, my book is set over like 40, 72 hours. Like I the more constraints mm-hmm. that sometimes like the deeper you can get into certain things so i'm i'm with you on that i love that so, but you're bringing me perfectly to my next question which is there's a scene when they're kind of all sitting around and trying to watch columbo and everyone's got their input as to whether he's a a dope or a genius or that his genius and this i don't this book felt a little like a throwback to i didn't i didn't watch columbo but I was thinking Beverly Hills Cop, you know, there's it's because mm. these these relationships are really what you're tuning in for. But then there's also like wait, there's bad guys and they're doing bad things. And who is it? And does it look like this person or is it really this person? And what's going on here? So I, I love the kind of the genre feeling of this book that that's not your typical murder mystery. But I also want to talk about the title, which is to- right in that scene where they're eating popcorn and watching Columbo. And Beth thinks back of that moment or that time before Lana was who she is. And it was kind of simpler then. And they would melt cheese on bialys and watch in watch Columbo in her mom's bed. And they called it mother-daughter murder night. We used to call it. It was our little ritual, she says. So I wanted to talk about, like, I, I mean, I feel like we already have, but this... Tent pole of this these it's so much about these relationships but we are trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's happening here and I don't like really no. we could maybe move on to the next question but I it's to just sum up what you've been already talking about which is that you have a lot going on and you go manage to go as deep as you do wide and that's impressive very impressive
1: well- Thank you. And I think that, you know, for me, the mysteries I've always loved to read that my mom and I have always read have been more of the traditional mystery style. And I think also, you know, I didn't write this book initially thinking it was going to be published. I wrote it so that my mom and I could have something to focus on during her illness. And so I really wrote it to be a comforting escape for us. And I think that also a lot of people, you know, maybe it wasn't cancer, but I think a lot of people during the pandemic our reading appetites shifted. You know, I know some people went darker, some people went lighter. I definitely went to comfort in a way I hadn't before. So, you know, I went back to these murder mysteries I love, but I also, for the first time, was reading rom-coms and was just enjoying being in spaces where it wasn't sickly sweet saccharin. but I felt like it was light, it was fun, and I was being held by the warmth of the characters, and I wanted to bring that in. And I will also say that when my agent signed me, she said, you know, this could be really hard to sell because it's in between. It's both a family mm. drama and a murder mystery. And sometimes books that are in between don't do so Get well. Lost, and right. I just like, exactly. So I just have so much gratitude to Finley Donovan and Dial A for Aunties mm. and the Thursday yes. Murder Club and The yes. Maid because as it just turned out, these last couple of years have been a time when there has been this little hybrid weird thing created around comforting mysteries, humor and mysteries, Mm -hmm. and my book could really fall into that. And so just a few years ago, I don't think that was, and and I wasn't aware of these trends when I was writing. I just feel grateful that, you know, it it turned out this way. And I think that, you know, for me, my greatest hope for this book is that for a reader, it is an escape and and a comfort. And I think that You know, one of my favorite mystery writers working today is Louise Penny, who, when you read those Inspector Gamache books, yes, there are bad people doing bad things. Yes, there's a twisty puzzle to unravel. But you know that you're being held in a world and with a group, a cast of characters who are loving and who are fundamentally, you know, oriented towards justice and towards care. And even though you're reading about murder there's deep comfort there and I think that that was the kind of experience I was trying to have in writing this book but also for readers as well
2: yeah and we've had so many authors tell us that the thing that sustains them or they always think about is write the book they want to read right so you it sounds like that's what Mm. you've done right so even when that agent said I don't know this could be tough for you I mean you wrote what you would like to read it sounds like and and Yes then it also happens i think that the the universe or whatever sort of brought this was ready genre for it. Yeah, yeah was totally yeah. ready for it at the right time So now you've written this and you are, as you said, a debut novelist who has to get it out into the world. And I listened to your TEDx talk about the art of relevance, which you gave when you were the executive director of the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History. And it was super fascinating. And it made me think of how a lot of the things you were talking about there could apply to this new chapter of your life as a novelist. You know, how to make yourself and what you've created relevant to readers and how you can invite people in, in to your book, in this case, then, then it was the museum in an authentic way, you know, how you can open doors and welcome people in. But I also saw an Instagram post where you were talking about how you're trying to engage in this authentic way, but you also do have to do this very, you know, very typical marketing, promotion, sort of salesy aspect. Sell the book. Yeah. Yeah. That is required really now as an author. Yeah. So there's a little contradiction there. And I know you said it was like, it feels a bit like squeezing into a new pair of shoes, right? Like this, now Mm -hmm. I have to use my my social media in a different way. And so there is Mm -hmm. this balance. You want to be relevant. You want to invite people in and you want people to read it but you also want to do it in a way it seems that feels natural to you and maybe not too salesy so like how are you striking that balance i know you're sort of right in the in the beginning of the process but it's it's tough
1: yeah and i i think you know it's interesting that in my past life in museums social media and at that time it was particularly twitter and you know i ran a blog for years that was the source of a lot of my career growth and i was very comfortable with the idea that there that i had a social media presence and life online that was very blurred between professional and personal and i you know i just feel like my career grew up in that way and i think in a lot of ways the squeezing into shoes element is that the big thing i've been doing over the last few years is putting down mm-hmm. and letting go of that version of myself who was a nonprofit CEO and becoming this person who now can say she's an author but for the last 3 years could just say that she was unemployed writing and caregiving for you know her parents and her kid and and there was a lot of guilt and shame and stress that went with that transition for me. You know, I'll never forget, I was talking to a fellow museum director about a year into, you know, this transition for me. And I was telling him about the book and how I'm excited I'm writing this book. And he paused and he said, so are you writing this murder mystery, like, ironically? And I was just like, no, I'm not writing it ironically. This is my life now. But so I think that, one of the um, real gifts but like painfully learned gifts for me over the last couple years is this idea that you can be yourself outside of your title or outside of your job or your professional accomplishments so it's ironic to me to be kind of putting this on in a new way now and i think that on the one hand yes there is that kind of stress of coming out of a time when i was shedding professional identity online to now build it back up On the other hand, I do know that frankly, especially with social media being so weird now, it kind of feels great to know oh, now I'm using this for a reason. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not deciding, oh, is this oversharing? Is this this? Is this that? Now I'm just thinking, what serves the use I am trying to put this to now and uh, you know I live out in the woods off the grid as you mentioned in the bio and you know a lot of my life is about negotiating a relationship with technology that is healthy and I think that's incredibly hard to yeah. do it's incredibly hard for me mm. to do my, mo- my daughter is constantly telling me to go off my phone I'm really working on it but I love that I live in a place where the internet literally is a switch on the wall that I can turn on or off where there is no self service where I can really drop out. And I think that what I'm trying to do now as I become, you know, Nina Simon, the fiction author, Mm -hmm. is to hold that lightly. You know, I also, my dad is a rock musician, and he was in, you know, a big band all of my life. And I saw how complex and confusing it can be to have a relationship with yourself as a yourself a person and yourself on stage and I think that I learned a lot from my dad about how to draw some of those boundaries and I think I keep trying to think about how do I hold this with joy and excitement about all the awesome things happening with the book I can't wait to hear from readers about the book I you know I love talking to y'all about the book and then I'm going to Close my laptop and be back here in these redwood trees and go feed the chickens and, you know, do the other kind of life that I have. And I I think that, you know, we moved here 16 years ago and at the time it felt very radical. I'd always been a city person and, you know, I had no idea if this was going to work for me or not. But I feel like with how pervasive technology is these days, I can't even imagine how lost I would feel in the online world if I didn't live in the woods like I feel like I need that distance to be able to engage in a way that feels authentic and feels wholehearted and not feel like oh my god this is swallowing me whole and so kudos to y'all for figuring that out because like I am I get nervous about I think what I'm nervous about is not about the salesy part it's about how easy it can be To lose track of what is most important to me on a day-to-day basis, how I want to be focusing my energy and my time. And I feel like, you know, the making the... I love the book How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which is not about doing nothing. It's about having a conscious relationship Mm -hmm. with what you do and what you don't do, and especially online. And, And just this idea that people are and companies are trying to like take your attention Mm -hmm. and how can you choose and i think as a creator as a writer you know so much of our superpower is about being able to focus our attention on the things we want to observe on the things we want to create and i do not want to give that power to mark zuckerberg or elon musk or anybody else Mm -hmm. you know i want to hold it for myself and so i'm trying to negotiate that relationship
0: yeah and the place you live helps you that context gives you that yeah. space to do that for me i'm just always like if i pile my plate so full that i don't have the time to scroll right i mean i at least yeah. i get to choose in in mm-hmm. that way mm-hmm. you know i'm not someone who falls prey to the busy i mean maybe compared to someone else but i i'm busy but i never feel like i'm too busy i've never once said i'm too busy to do something i want to do never because I do the things I want to do and I do a lot of them and I don't spend a lot of time doing things that are caught by somebody else's attention. And that Mm -hmm. is, it's, it's, you know, setting those priorities is not easy, but it's, for me, it's a replacement thing. Like just know what you want to do and then you'll be less likely to fall into what, just because you have a moment to like lose an hour scrolling. Maybe.
1: Well, and that's such a good point that I actually feel like it's easiest to do this probably on the extremes because you're right. When I was, you know, working twelve-hour days and had a baby at home, it, like there was no question I was not going to get. Consumed by those things, and now I'm on the opposite side where you know I love having. I used to love having every 15 minutes scheduled. Like when I was CEO, I just like loved going, going, going. Now I feel like my greatest joy is a day with nothing on the calendar, where I know I'm going to get into deep writing for a couple hours. Then I'm going to go, you know, for a long yes. run. I'm going to, you know, and um. It, affords a different kind of creative space which I feel like is so critical for me but you're right that it, it requires a different kind of discipline because there's no question that there you are many days for it. him where... <laughs> I I could and I have lost it and yes. uh, sometimes I call it book research but sometimes that is very <laughs> questionable when all I've done is binge watch some show that I think maybe spuriously might connect with the story I'm trying to write. Yes, oh my gosh. yes. Well,
0: but I, I have- will say, I I think that's a fully scheduled day. My sometimes a fully scheduled day for me is do nothing and go for a walk, go for an an ocean swim at night. Like we were just in L.A. Yes. and so. That was sometimes like that's my whole day. That's that's what I have to accomplish. And mm-hmm. so then I feel accomplished when I do that nothingness. But I know, yeah, it's yes. is, it is. But a this fine
2: book, life. I have this book, How to Do Nothing. I talked oh. about it. Remember, oh, Corinne, I talked she, about it on a Friday preview and you were I like, do. I would never buy that book simply because of the title. That sounds horrible to me. You, Because you're like... I Have you read it? No, it's sitting here, but now this is what happens <laughs> Oh, my to God. Me. Oh, it's so good. But I'm so glad. It's so because good. Because this is yeah. a sign from the universe to me. When when <laughs> I have things that sit there, and then for whatever... I know why I bought it. I remember what the first impetus was. But for whatever reason, that didn't get me to open it. But now, the second time, with you saying it, now I'm like, oh, she will. that's going to the she top will. of the pile now. Yeah, I yeah. believe that.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's... It, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And the title's a little... Mislead, it is a great title. And, you know, it's a book by an artist about how she chooses where to put her attention. And it's much more lyrical. It's not a prescriptive business self-help book at all. And I just love it. I actually there were a couple years when I was deprogramming from like CEO life. I had it next to my bed and you know, I would just sort of like open it at random oh. sometimes if I was feeling stressed out and I now it gets to live on a shelf like a normal, normal <laughs> book with a normal person. <laughs> but there was definitely a long deprogramming period for me. And that book was really helpful. Oh, nice. oh
0: coming from Big Law, my deprogramming was Twila Tharp's The Creative Habit. That was mm-hmm. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs>
1: like, uh, I need yes. to open this book and yes. remind
0: myself, what am I doing?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that people don't often talk about, you know, we look at these leaps and I'm somebody who's made a lot of career leaps and we sort of just focus on the new and the next. And there is a ton of what am I doing in the transition. And I think especially for something like writing a book where while you're writing it. Like, at least for me, I was constantly flipping between feelings like I am God, I'm creating a universe and feelings like, what the heck am I doing? This is so embarrassing. (laughs) Yes, what am I doing? And you don't get any external feedback or input for a long time. And then once you get it, you know, it can go your way or it cannot. I feel so blessed and lucky that, you know, the publication journey for this book has been what it is. But I also feel like, you know... For me, what got me into actually choosing to write the book was when my mom was sick, I picked up Bird by Bird, but I also, which is a very well-known, great writing book by Anne Lamott, but I also picked up Elizabeth Gilbert. She had this book called Big Magic. And with it was this accompanying podcast. I actually didn't read the book till much later, but there was this podcast called Magic Lessons, where she would have call-ins from people who wanted to do something creative. They wanted to write a story. They wanted to do stand-up comedy. And she would kind of coach them and tell them they had to go do it. And then she would follow up with them a few months later about what had happened for them. And I would just you know, I was taking my mom to the hospital and all this stuff. And the only time away I had was running, going for these long runs in the Topanga Hills. And I would just listen to Elizabeth Gilbert, like coach people. on like, you gotta do it. (laughs) Go get in your van and go do that gig or go write that thing. And I was like, you know what? I'm, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And, um, I think that you need that balance, right. Of Mm -hmm. like, If you think you're going, I'm a very self motivated person, but this is a hell of a thing to try and do strictly based on your own self encouragement. And I think that finding that encouragement and um, that uh, like respect wherever you can, whether it's from your dog or your mom or Liz Gilbert in your ears while you're running, you know, or or for you, Twilight Tharp. I mean, I I just think that to presume that we have within us the audacity Mm -hmm. to create something out of nothing and to feel confident in it every step of the way i just think that you know find that love and that help from the outside because nobody well maybe there's somebody who's so egomaniacal that they can do that but i would be worried for them yeah. so and their family
0: yeah and even if you can find it you have to sustain it for a long period yeah. of time. This is a long journey. It'd be a spark, and,
2: but then it yeah. wear out yes. real quick.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, I was going to ask you about your acknowledgements, but you've already said it exactly. And I have to tell you, really weird, I would listen to those magic lessons, podcasts podcast mm. a, a, going across town to UBS where no one wanted to hear about magic or- <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, I feel like- that was the beginning of my transition where I'm like, I feel like an imposter, mm. but yet at the, the bus, when I'm listening to this and she's kicking my ass to get there, I'm like, this is the most me. And when I go inside for nine hours, 12, actually it was only nine at that time because I had two kids and I negotiated a schedule where I left, but I was like, I feel like I'm dying inside. And then this bus yeah. ride listening to this, that's where I come alive. Yeah. But you're right, oh, and I'm going to have to check that. back in with you in a year when I'm because I'm now just starting to think, oh my god, people I re- used to work with might read this book. Like I, it's embarrassing in that, like <laughs> yeah. in the way that you understand. Yeah,
1: it is. But it's also awesome, like to yeah. fully own that. And that's you know, where I need I to just get, was get talking to. Somebody who was like, you should send a book to that guy who said, "Are you doing this ironically?" You yes. know, and <laughs> and and I love that image of you on the bus. Yeah, I mean in the acknowledgements, you know, I talk about my mom and this experience and, you know, I always joke that my mom is like the best and worst beta reader because, you know, she was the alpha reader, right? Every chapter I read, (laughs) I would show it to her first Mm -hmm. and her only perspectives were about, you know, what people were wearing, whether Lana was coming off as a B word or not (laughs) because she's very protective of Lana. Um, (laughs) But then she would always just say, great, what, you know, what happens next? And I think that, You know, they have that program at libraries, some libraries for people who are working on their literacy where you can read to dogs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you're writing a book, you sort of need a very loving golden retriever or in this case, like a very loving mom to just like read it and just say what happened. Here's a typo, you know, and this person's fingernails should be purple, not green. And what happens next? You know, and I think that just finding that can be so valuable. And yeah, yeah. people are going to read this book, your book, and they're going to say, wow, well, I had no idea. Yeah. And some of them will be vaguely embarrassed for you. <laughs> and and probably, I don't know about you, but there's a version of me a few years ago who would be vaguely embarrassed. And that's actually the thing I cared about more than what other colleagues would think was there were times where I was like, oh my God, my past self would have been so embarrassed by this self, so, and then I would say, you know what? Though I am so freaking happy yeah. compared to who that person was. Exactly. I am done. Okay, exactly. but yeah. guys, yeah. guys, yeah. you—I yes. know yes. we didn't even get to astrology
2: yet. You are not the same sign. You're a <laughs> Cancer, I believe. But you guys have this cardinal sign yeah. thing. You're gonna have to it explain is. something That's to me because is. I am so fixed. Maybe this is why would you be embarrassed? I don't even understand. Somebody, I—I <laughs> yes. I am literally sitting here being like, I don't know what they mean. So what? what's the embarrassing? You wrote a book. What's the embarrassment? I, I'm so uh, curious.
0: I'm like, I'll let Nina, if you know, but Kate, it's the. You, know, it's funny because we just recorded a, a series of episodes mm. talking about going from lawyer to writer. And Kate, mm. where you say, and I was just listening because I was editing them okay. and you were like, it wouldn't even occur to me to stop doing something I was already doing. I think that's probably the source of it, but for a cardinal sign, so You know, a cardinal sign is, there are three types of signs, a cardinal sign, a fixed sign and a mutable sign. Cardinal signs are the ones that start like a season, spring, summer. They're the ones that start. The fixed is the middle of it. And then the third is the ending, the mutable sign that kind of knows how to wrap things up. Cardinal signs know how to start things. They dive right Mm. in. They have no fear of it. And then like you're saying, this lesson that also a fixed sign needs to learn is, is to quit. When yeah. it's not working anymore, we don't you don't like to quit. Y- yeah. You have to get out. Mm. And if it's not working for you, quitting is a really valuable, important lesson right. to know. But we're stuck And these in the are middle, things that come so very easily it. to cardinal size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think the embarrassment is about the fact that, you know, and I'm just learning this terminology, so I'm probably butchering it, <laughs> but I think that at least in the American business, and in my case, nonprofit world, the fundamental value is on the fixed, is on the, you're building accomplishments, you're building a career that is bricks, you know, in a wall, you have a coherent bio that, you know, is linear. Mm -hmm. And I think that For those of us who, you know, in my case, are like joyful quitters and polymaths who love to try different things, it is seen as flighty, it is seen as unserious. And, you know, I think that for some people it's impossible to imagine, how could you be so deep into something for a few years and then just walk away from it? And you must not have been that deep into it. Or, and I think also for me, you know, and I think this happens a lot in nonprofit world, you know, I had become somebody who was doing work I was really proud of and that a lot of people in that world cared a lot about and I felt like there was a sense of betrayal mm-hmm. that if I was leaving I was betraying people, I was letting people down and I think that that was something I had to unlearn was frankly a self-centeredness about the idea that I was so important that that was legitimate. And um I think that a lot of times people who work in nonprofits and in activism, we give ourselves over to the cause. Mm. And there is a sense that I should be willing to make sacrifices for this cause. And for me to pursue my own happiness or even my own curiosity about something else mm. is somewhere between selfish. an embarrassment, <laughs> selfish, yeah. a betrayal. And I think I, I had to work through a lot of those feelings. I think also if you've been in professional world, I don't know if this is true for you, Karim, but there is a sense to which creative like taking time to do something creative and you know i was a museum director i worked with artists all the time it was just it's seen as like well that's nice for somebody else like this idea Mm -hmm. that we have meetings we write reports we don't (laughs) write novels you know and i i think that there is a sense of like you're absolutely right kate and i can hear you say i can hear the sentence like you wrote a book like that's like you you, did there's an implied like that's impressive
2: i feel like to me Yeah.
1: yeah but it yeah, but I don't know. when it's just in your laptop and you're sitting in your yeah, kitchen that part I and get. you're like Yes, I yeah. totally around, get that. You know? but then yeah. once it's yeah. out yeah. in the world,
2: like I get everything you said so far, yeah. but I feel like once it's out in the world, I would think now you'd be like, Whatever they thought about me, like a betrayal right. or quitting or flighty or whatever, like now I've done the thing. So yeah. they can all go screw. Yeah. But maybe that's yeah. what <laughs>
1: I always think about, I have this good friend who inherited an obscene amount of money. And when that happened, they were really nervous for people, for colleagues and stuff to find out. And then, you know, they said to me, you know, I've realized that the people who are close to me, because they were nervous that people would think it changed them or all these kinds of things. And they finally, they said to me, you know, I realize that people who are close to me know me and love me and know what this, you know, complicates in my life and what it doesn't change. And they said, you know, and and the other people, I just, why do, I don't care what they think about what I'm other, how I'm parenting, how I'm doing, like, why do I care what they think about this? And I I think about that a lot in terms of how can I, again, it's about where do you focus your attention and like, who am I, am I spending time, which voices am I letting live rent-free in my head and like (laughs) trying not to let the voices, the imagined voices related to that live there. And yeah, yeah, I, you know. I guess also, this sounds so silly, you know, the book's about to come out, it's come out by the time we're talking, but I still can't, there's still a very small part of me, even though I like physically have some books now, that's kind of like, is this really going (laughs) to happen? Like, it just feels too much like a weird dream Uh that other people indulged me in. So I I think there's also this unreality to it. Um, And I've actually talked to other writer friends, uh, it makes me feel less crazy, who, you know, they signed with an agent and they're always afraid their agent's going to drop them. And I a hundred percent felt that, you know, or like once I had my deal with my publisher, I kept feeling like they were going to drop, like, it and it wasn't Mm. like, I'm not insecure. I'm a very confident person, but it just, it just doesn't feel feel like this should be allowed to happen to people. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know. I I (laughs) I am
0: with you on all of that. Yeah. I mean, I and I second all of you've just given me so many words to describe that feeling. And I find that this time, Mm -hmm. so I'm about to hand in my last developmental edit. So it's going to move move on to copy edits. And now I'm like, this is going to be a real book. Other people are going to read these words, not just some words, these Mm -hmm. words. And I feel like this is the part of the journey when I'm inviting those voices into my head. Some of them are Mm -hmm. started with like writers I really admire and have become friendly with. I'm like, they're going to be embarrassed by my book because it's not... Up to their standards or whatever, and and now I'm starting to invite in other people I've worked with, and they're going to be embarrassed because they didn't know I had all these weird ideas in my head, and and yeah, so all mm-hmm. of those things, I, I think it's just part of that the the journey to getting there. The unreal part is definitely yeah, a thing. I can see that a hundred percent, and also I the opposite of nonprofit, I was very capitalistic industry. And so it was about building wealth, creating wealth, and to jump off and to go into an industry that Mm -hmm. pays notoriously very, very little. And it just seems like the antithesis of what I was doing for the first part of my career, which is right because i didn't like what i was doing it felt soul sucking and terrible right. this feels like creation and joy and all the good things i
1: want to invite into my life so it should be yeah. the opposite they should be. Yeah it's like you move to the moon i mean <laughs> I, you know this happened to us when we moved here cuz we were living in downtown washington dc and we moved here in 2007 we got married that summer here on this property and we were and we live on a former kind of commune. You know, there's a lot of different little cabins. We live with a bunch of people. And when we moved here, we thought, oh, we're going to get married. All our friends are going to come out for the wedding because we got married on the place. And they're all going to see this place and they're all going to fall in love and they're all going to want to move here. And of course, all of our friends come from D.C. and New York and Boston and all the you play L.A. Yeah. And they are just like looking around and, and we're like, Look at this beautiful like 1970s summer camp kind of place <laughs> yeah. that we're living in. We're so lucky. And they're just like, "Are you in, insane? Like bananas, like what is happening?" And it, and I, you know, hmm. some of those people, probably some of your ex-colleagues are going to look at what you're doing and they're going to secretly think, "I w- I don't I'm not brave enough or I wish I could do that." Mm-hmm. Some of them are just going to be like, yeah. "This is like a bad smell has entered the room." <laughs> yeah. But I think for all of them are going to just be mystified because on some level it doesn't feel like a life that's available to them and i think that you know as we're talking about this i guess i'm realizing i think i internalize that yes. a little bit about this book yes. stuff too yes. you know and it's like how can this be life you know and what a what a gift Nina, like we are here
0: <laughs> just because of you and this book no yeah. other reason so it is real yeah
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll check in on how I feel about that in a couple of weeks. But no, I did. I just I had to sign a couple hundred books the other day. And it was like an out of body experience. I was like, whose books are these? What is this for? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. And it's very strange. Oh. Yeah, wow. yeah.
0: Wow. Well, we always like to end every episode. Thank you so much for taking so much of your time and, and being so generous with this conversation. I feel so enlightened and inspired in so many ways, not just for where I am in the in my process but just generally yeah generally and creatively and in about life, life and priorities so thank you for that
1: I'm just really honored to be with you today. I've been listening to y'all's great episodes and just having oh, so much fun okay. having you in my kitchen when I cook with me. So thank you. Oh, oh my gosh. That is
0: so incredibly sweet. And, and we're glad to hear it. But we want to ask what you're loving right now. Any books you want to share? Any TV shows that you've binged and felt bad Podcasts, about? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. you
1: know. <laughs> Well, I, I just read Tom Lake and by Ann Patchett, and it was mm. such a, like, just warm, delightful daydream of a book. But the book that I, like, can't get out of my head that I read just a few weeks ago is called Whatever Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. Mm. It's by Claire Jimenez. It came out last year, and it very different from Mother Daughter Murder Night, but has some... Similarities in that it's a a family mystery and it takes, it's really focused on this mother and these young women. And it's about 12 years after this titled character, Ruthie Ramirez, went missing when she was in middle school. And the now adult siblings of Ruthie see this woman on a reality TV show who they think is their sister. And it's about them trying to figure it out. It is not a traditional mystery. It is deep character work with these women and these Puerto Rican women in Staten Island. And it's just really beautiful. And I, you know, I feel like, you know, as somebody this was Mother Daughter Murder Night was the book I was able and ready and needed to write now yeah. but i feel like there's so much more i want to learn about writing fiction and um that when i read a book like what happened to ruthie ramirez i just in awe and like wow yeah. there is so much mm-hmm. like deep pov in this just beautiful way and um just a really juicy story about mothers and daughters um with some mystery involved as oh, well
0: nice. you are the second author to to recommend that one and i remember looking it up really? same thing i looked it up and mm-hmm. i was like i i i i wanted to buy it something happened and now it's done it's a done deal see, I'm but read now it's one. exactly yeah. see yes. same thing now nice. it's yes. been brought yes. back
2: yes. to the surface we yes. yeah it's a great book um yeah yeah, yeah. All well, right. thank I- you so much yes. nina this was just such a joy i i really it was such a pleasure for us
1: yeah absolutely oh thank you for me as well and corinne do you still live near l.a no, no, no. We
0: were just visiting. No. My my husband's from oh, okay. Southern California. So we were there for a month and we kind of just oh, went.
1: Oh, right. I heard your whole yeah. wanting to get. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Wanting to. We went kind of off the grid as much as you can in LA. But for us, it was off the grid of our lives. Yeah. And so it was a whole yes. different experience. Yeah. And yeah.
1: To great. go somewhere for a month is great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's such yeah. a magical thing. Yeah. And you- I, I grew up in LA and I feel like LA is a great place to be from but and, and now I've spent a lot more time there because of my mom but it's it would be real it's really hard I think or I can't imagine living there again although I love it when I'm there yes
2: yeah. yes I know And that you feeling. said something about swimming in the ocean so you swim in the Pacific Corinne because you do yes, not Corinne doesn't I like sit, the beach according to her oh really I ocean. swam in the ocean so
1: yesterday like, I was just what? thinking about when you said that yeah I
0: I think I mentioned it. yeah I don't I don't have a relationship with the Atlantic Ocean despite having lived close yeah. by it for my entire mm-hmm. life and I have a real relationship with the pacific ocean it just yeah it's a weird thing i don't know what it is but it calls to me in a way that i just don't understand yeah yeah yeah, it's a little mystical but anyway mother daughter murder night nina simon thank you so much for joining us definitely pick up this book it's out now lana is like no one else you you need her in your life
1: (laughs) I think we all need a little Lena in our life and and hopefully within ourselves. So thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you both.